Hello, everyone, and welcome to Untangle, the meditation podcast from Gaim. I'm your host, Patricia Karpus. In this series, we introduce you to real people with extraordinary stories and experts who have devoted their lives to teaching and helping others through meditation. In today's episode, I sat down with Sukraj Kaur Gippel, Boulder's favorite Kundalini teacher. Sukraj talks about growing up in a family with addiction and mental health issues and her subsequent discovery of kundalini yoga. She shares how it's impacted her life and how she now brings these teachings to others. If you haven't heard about kundalini yet, you're in for a treat. Here's her story. Sukraj, it's so great to have you here today. I'm really excited to to hear your story. Thank you, Patricia. I'm really happy to be here. So thank you. So my first question for you is, can you tell us a little bit about your 10-year-old self so we get a sense of your background and from from whence you've come? Wow. I wasn't expecting that. My 10-year-old self, um, I grew up in a family of um, eight. So I have six sisters, two brothers, and a mom and dad. And I was born and raised Roman Catholic. I actually didn't start to really talk until I was 13. Um, so I was very quiet. I was the third of eight and um, a pretty dysfunctional family. So I was very careful and very quiet. And I was also um, very much a part of the church. It's unusual yes, to not speak mm-hmm. until you're 13. Mm-hmm. Do you have memories of what was going through your head? Were you writing or were you completely like silent? Well, no, I was communicating. I mean, it was like essential speak, Um, you know, like I was talking to people in my family, but I wasn't participating in, in any kind of discussion beyond what was needed. Actually, I didn't even know that I wasn't um, engaging and not talking until my brothers and sisters would point that out, that I was, you know, never responding or it was just kind of essential speak only. I just was being very observant, very watchful of energy and um, the way I felt around certain people. I was very connected to to nature, like I said, and to trees and to animals. So you're that sensitive. Makes sense. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You were sensitive to yeah. all of the energy around right. you. And maybe the human energy was not your first energy. That is really well put. Yeah, that's exactly it. So you always knew that you were curious about people, which led you to study psychology. Yes. So my undergraduate was in psychology, and my minor is in human sexuality. And did you want to practice or teach at that time? Well, I knew that I was interested in what made us tick and what made us work and how we made a connection to God, even though I didn't know what that word meant. Um, It was actually a really scary, intimidating word for me. Um, And I knew that I wanted to help people. I was living in an arena of addiction in my own family life, and so I could see the way we covered up the truth. Really, that's what I was after. It's like, what's the truth? Like, what's the purpose of my life, and what am I supposed to be doing here, and what's everyone else doing? Because it didn't seem like they were doing anything that made any sense to me. So I was more comfortable being quiet in myself and recognizing that than participating in it. Beautiful. Like, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I can 
you can feel that authenticness mm-hmm. in you, and maybe you didn't name it as mm-hmm. such, but that seems like that was such a driving driving force for you. When you talk about addiction and coming from a family of addiction, when did you first start even naming it addiction or understanding that that was an issue in your family and then perhaps coming up with solutions right. to survive in an right. environment like that? I think I started noticing it when I would go on play dates. And the way I noticed it as a little girl is I would go into my friend's house and I would feel safe. That's what it was. And I remember actually saying that to myself of like, what, why does this place feel different? Why does this house feel different? As I got older, my other brothers and sisters started to act out more and things being named like Um, You know, there's mental illness and addiction in my family. So as that started to be named more, then it became more clear for me. And then there was a real drive and and heat inside of me to understand this so that it wouldn't have its effect on me. Um, And certainly I always knew that I wanted to be a mother and certainly it would not have any effect or the, the, the least amount of effect that it could on my children. And then there was a pact probably I made to myself right in early teenage years where I knew I just need to get, just survive and get out. The first chance that I had to leave, I would leave. And that was actually really congruent with um, me hearing the word yoga, me hearing the word kundalini yoga for the first time, and knowing that I did not know what that meant, but it felt like it was right and it was a path for me. Did you have any natural practices before you were taught yes yoga kundalini meditation yes. did you for to self soothe yourself yes. that yes i think the biggest gift that i have is a word that we use in yoga it's called japa or japa it just means to repeat you repeat and whatever we repeat whatever it is good or bad it creates us and so i had a natural inclination to be conscious of repeating healthy habits In an unhealthy family environment, I chose to eat well. I chose to exercise. Um, At some point in high school, I realized I needed to really study to get out of there. So I was just naturally good at an inner kind of discipline, a repetition of things that were good for me. It's such a gift that you were able to go down that path versus falling into the addiction behaviors, and yeah. which I'm sure you saw in many of your siblings, too. So you you had this kind of personal practice yourself, which you didn't name as a practice, but mm-hmm. it was what you did mm-hmm. as a child and as a teen. You go and then get your master's in psychology and sexology. When do you become a meditator based on a particular teaching or, mm-hmm. you know, talk to us a little bit about mm-hmm. your yoga practice mm-hmm. as well? Well, I my first yoga class was with Richard Freeman here in Boulder, Colorado, when I was, uh, I think I was 23. And um, I was very much uh, drawn to him as a teacher. He really embodied yoga union. And so I dabbled. I'd, I went in and out and in and out of different types of yoga and did it maybe for a year and and then maybe not. And then what really solidified my practice is when my children were um, born and they were toddlers and I was really feeling like um, 
I want to just go back and say the piece about being born and raised and living in a really dysfunctional family, it still has it had its effect on me. And so the way it had its effect on me was I was a really good worker. I, you know, did my undergraduate in two years and my graduate in one year. I, I compensated by looking good on the outside, but I still had my problems and my issues. And when I had my children, bam, they were right there in front of me and I couldn't do anything about them. And that's when I really got serious about practicing. Shortly after that, I started doing vinyasa yoga and then teaching vinyasa yoga. And that same thing didn't get to the soul in me. I still felt like I had a lot of problems and I didn't understand how to deal with them. Uh, From there, a friend of mine told me, that there was a kundalini yoga teacher in town and I should take kundalini yoga. So I went and my first kundalini class, it was just an immediate experience of myself and I hadn't felt myself in a long time. And it was in that moment, in that first class, that I knew that I found something that was going to work for me and that was addressing parts of myself that I couldn't get to in any other practice so that was about 11 years ago when, when I fe- finally locked in on kundalini yoga. Was there a pivotal moment for you when everything shifted and, and you maybe said to yourself, so you have your children and it brings up a lot of anxiety and children are a mirror mm-hmm. to everything that's going on with us. Was there a moment where you knew that you were going to be okay and your family was going to be okay and you were on a different path than the one that you had come from? Yeah, I think that moment was when um, I took responsibility for my problems because before then I felt like I gave them to my husband, I gave them to, you know, work or something like that. But there was a real moment. And in yoga, you know, what, what we say is like that, that self-initiation. Like nobody can do it for us. Like I really got it that that it was my problem, that it was my issue, and that I had to deal with it. And once I settled in on a particular path, I knew it had all the tools. I didn't know where it was going to take me, how long it was going to take me, but I, I just felt an immense sense of trust and, and strength and peace in uncovering what I hadn't looked at before in my life. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I've been to your classes, and I'm sort of a new Kundalini student. And what blows me away is how different it is from every other yoga practice mm-hmm. that I've ever done. Mm-hmm. And I've done yoga for 15, 20 years and love it. But Kundalini changes the way you feel from mm-hmm. going into a class and coming out. Mm-hmm. And I've talked to other people who have had that same experience. And what is it that we're experiencing that changes us. Well, it is. I mean, kundalini yoga is referred to as the yoga of awareness. And because we do really unusual things, it gives us a different experience, one that we've not had. And so the way that kundalini yoga works is that we we work with a mudra. There's a, a certain position that you put your hands in. And then we work with a mantra. There's a certain thing, a, a, a repetition, a chant that's um, you're repeating. And then you're in a certain physical position a posture called an asana, and then you are doing a certain breathing practice, um, breathing a certain way that's instructed. Um, and so we're doing all of those things at the same time. It's really taking you to different places in the experience of yourself that you've ever had. And because it's um, 
you know, it, it has a very specific effect. We use this word kriya. Kriya means a specific action. Um, and so it's having a certain action, a very felt, known action. And then we work with the mantras. The sound current is so profoundly healing that um, it's a, it kind of short circuits the way that we normally think. And it brings a, a quality of healing and peace into our lives very, very quickly. Can you talk a bit about the science behind this? I know you know you talk a lot in class about how we're working on this part of our brain today, mm-hmm. or, and I know some of these asanas and some of the breath work that we're doing is designed right. to kind of muck with the brain a little yeah. bit to get you out of your yeah. patterns, and yeah. can't, it's not always comfortable. And so, yeah. and that's the purpose. I'm Guessing. Exactly. <laughs> to not be exactly. comfortable. You definitely want to find where your edge is because sometimes we think the body says no, but really the mind is saying, oh, no, like I'm not going to stick my tongue out and pant like a dog. That's really dumb. Like uh, I've never done that in any other yoga class. But the reason you would stick your tongue out and pant like a dog is because your tongue is related to the vagus nerve. And the vagus nerve is this nerve that starts in your brain, goes down your throat, through your chest, through most of your intestines. And traditional science right now, what they're starting to understand about the vagus nerve that the yogis have known since since they've known of this nerve is that that nerve has everything to do with your ability to feel compassion towards yourself and towards another person. When so. you're going in to teach a class and you often theme your classes, I do. Mm-hmm. how are you choosing that theme? Mm-hmm. What's the process that you go through? I really pay attention to weather and seasons. So um, right now, you know, we're working on intestines and lungs because that's what's happening right now in our body as it's shifted to the fall. So I might narrow it down on what's happening, you know, environmentally. I might narrow it down on what's happening politically. So, you know, I, I care and know very much that our practice is for everybody. I'm very interested in teaching people to to take their practice throughout their day, that the practice of yoga is not, and meditation is not just something that we go and do inside of a building with a group of other people. Really where it starts to get some legs is when you can maintain that sense, sense of peace and, and um, energetic shift throughout your day through your relationships with yourself. Can you give an example? So someone comes to work and they do their kundalini class in the morning, then... Somebody irritates them in just a giant way and triggers. Mm-hmm. How do you take your meditation practice into the day with you so that you can pause and react in mm-hmm. a way that is more fruitful? Mm-hmm. Well, the most important thing I think for people to remember is that if you are not directing your mind, your mind is pretty much bossing you around. You know, it's it's directing you, and and that's what we don't want. We really want to learn to control our mind, to control our thoughts. And so, so that they essentially serve the purpose of why we're alive, um, so that we can use the, the mental energy to honestly be who we are and honestly give to this world what we have, what we can give, what we're good at. Are those our stories, yes, basically? Yes, exactly. Okay. okay. Our stories, yeah. And so we're repeating them in all different ways, but we're not even aware of the, of the fact that we are repeating those. They're negative or they're fearful or they're depressed or they're anxious or they're, you know, tilted towards an addiction, something like that. And so when you start to use just a simple mantra, inhaling sat and exhaling the mantra nam throughout your day, 
it has an energy to it. It has a frequency to it that reminds you to honestly be who you are in that situation and to know that when you start to say that to yourself, that you are also bringing in that energy quality towards you. So you are actually attracting truthful conversations, honest conversations with other people around you. And honestly, unless you're mentally ill, you can control your thoughts. You really can become aware of like, wow, I'm really like thinking negatively. Or, you know, a lot of times people are like, one of the things I'll say is don't, don't pray for, you know, worry is like praying for what you don't want. Worrying is a real waste of our energy. We can be aware that we're afraid and that we're anxious of something, but that awareness gives us the opportunity to maybe start to pray or maybe start to project some positivity or ask for some help, but to do something around the fact that we realize that we're not feeling good in the situation. And so that's where controlling your thoughts helps us to start to change the way that we then speak and then the way that we behave. If we don't feel peacefulness inside of us, we're, we're not going to have peaceful families and we're not going to have peaceful work situations. That's where it starts is with yourself. So when you asked me, you know, when was that point when you really, it clicked in, that's when I realized it's like, the problems aren't because of the world. The problems are, they're really my problems. Like I really get the problems that I'm having in my life are up to me. And until you make that um, self-initiation, that experience uh, or that decision, then, then you're not even aware of how your thoughts are affecting you. Because the really sad thing is for me is that people don't know that they're not their thoughts. They really think that they're their thoughts and we are not our thoughts. We are that stillness between the thoughts. Who we really are is what happens when, you know, the thoughts stop happening. What about in relationship to others? So I, I understand that it's about what we put out there, but what about how do we help in relationship to others, whether it's in our families, our communities, or in the world? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, then it gets a little trickier. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, we're all, we're all moving through our day the way that we experience our world, and we're all showing up, and, and we're always telling each other who we are and what's really going on. And for me, part of the privilege of a practice is that we take a vow to help other people out. So the, the more angry the person is, the more obnoxious the person is, the more the you know negative that person is, it's an indication of how far away they are from the truth of who they are. And so it starts with that basic level of awareness. When you see that that person is misbehaving, however you would describe that, and that's where our practice kicks in. We can remember what it was like for us to have been far away from ourselves, to have everything agitate us. You know, to not be able to rise up and actually look at the foothills or look at something else, you know, find some way to say thank you, essentially. It doesn't happen for everyone. And so our practice is a vehicle, just us being in the presence of our own peacefulness, in the presence of our own breath, um, in the presence of our own gratitude. It affects them. It absolutely affects them. They may not know it. They may look at you just for half of a second and go, God, that person looks happier. That person looks really prettier. That person, you know, whatever. But it gets in. And so um, it's just it's through awareness and recognition. That's really what it is. And if you can rise above it and honestly see it from that bird's eye view and not take it personally, 
that's a big thing that we do is we really think that the way people are treating us is about us. It is not about us. It is about them. And they are telling you how unhappy they are, how much in pain they are, and they don't even know it. Because when we're happy, when we're clear, we don't want to hurt. We just don't want to hurt. There is no option other than to help. So that also makes us much more compassionate. Exactly. For how the other person is. Exactly. And so um, I would really encourage people to go online, learn more about meditation, find a meditation teacher where you live so that you have the support and structure and understanding that the entire happiness of your life is coming through your thoughts. You know, there's so many different ways to learn to meditate. Kundalini yoga is a very active form of meditation, and that can be you know, unusual for some people who are just kind of quiet and just following the breath. And that's a wonderful, great meditation. You just want to find the one that clicks for you and understand no matter what you choose, at some point you will hate it and you will feel like it doesn't work and that it's stupid and you should do Tai Chi instead, you know, or Nia or hike or you fill in the blank. That means when you get to that place in your practice, really important for everyone to know, you're onto something. Something is about to shift. What I love about your studio, which is just so fantastic, is that on the schedule, almost every class, uh, it says vinyasa yes. and meditation, hatha and meditation, yes, thank you. which is yeah. so fantastic because yes. you're really saying how important meditation is to the yoga practice. Right. I think this is becoming more and more important right. for people. Well, people don't understand in yoga that there's eight parts to it. We call them eight limbs. And the way, unfortunately, that we've understand yoga, understood yoga is through just the postures. And that's the misidentification that it's just not true. It's, it's, that's a small part of it. The only reason why you move your body in those postures is so that your body doesn't hurt. The energy is flowing so that when you sit and learn how to meditate, then your body isn't agitating you because you, your back doesn't hurt or your knee doesn't hurt. And so... We don't understand that, and, and that to me is a driving force as in my teaching is I'm, I really want to um, n- not just demystify. I don't like that word. Um, I want to make it accessible, but I also want to, um, I don't want to dumb it down. You are responsible for who you are, and anything that you wish for yourself to be, you have the power to make yourself. And so until we get to that place in our practice, we don't know how fantastic and amazing we can um, we can actually feel. So I love that one. I love that one, too. Yeah. It's such a great inspiration. Yeah. Sukraj, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks so much to Sukraj, and thank you all for listening. We look forward to sharing more inspiring stories on our next episode. If you'd like to know more about Sukraj and the Kundalini practice, check out her website at peace-flow-yoga.com. If you have feedback or suggestions for guests, email us at untangle at And don't forget to check out Meditation Studio by Gaim in the App Store. See you next time. <laughs>